Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome back to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, creator and host on a new Mac this week. Thank goodness. <laughs> with me today is my good friend, Matthew. Hello. You wrote this episode. I wrote this episode. Wow. What a relief. Although I did write another episode this week anyway, <laughs> because you're going away and then we're taking a week off. Oh, I thought it was like a backup episode in case you hated this one. No, there's no such thing. <laughs> we don't have, we don't have backup episodes. <laughs> the views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate, Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense, and some listeners may find it disturbing. We're not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We're two ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime in the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some Dark Poutine. A deal at twice the price. A di What? A, a deal at twice the price. That doesn't sound like a deal. <laughs> no, even if you paid double, it's still a deal. That's how good of a deal it is. Wow. Yeah. Between 1974 and 1976, a series of rapes and murders took place in and around the small town of Strathroy in southwestern Ontario, perpetrated by Christian Herbert Harold McGee. He sexually assaulted and murdered three women and raped two others. This is Dark Poutine episode 187, The Mad Slasher of Strathroy. And so you were really, really looking forward to this episode. I have never seen you come in so quickly, put your <laughs> headphones on, and sit down. Well, this is my hometown, right? Yeah, this is your hometown. These are my people. They're your peeps. Yeah. How aware of this case were you before? You know, once I started looking into it, because I knew I wanted to write some episodes. Yep. And, when, and then I was like, well, actually, you know, London, Ontario region, you know, is it has had like a lot of serial killers. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, well, but one of them was from Strathroy, because I can remember my great grandmother. Right. Once saying, oh, he, this guy was a bad man. And it, I didn't have that memory until I started doing this research. Oh, that's kind of cool. Right. And, and then I found... Not cool that there was a yeah. bad man, but cool that you had the memory. And then, so I started talking to family members and one of them went all through school with him. So oh, wow. So I've interviewed her for, there you for go. this episode. And Strathroy has been in the news, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. lately so yeah do you remember that isis supporter aaron driver who blew himself up in the back of a taxi 
No, I don't remember that at all. Last year, a couple years ago. Okay, yeah. He was on his way to a shopping mall or something. That was in Strathroy. Mm -hmm. And Nathaniel Veltman, who's a terrorist accused of running down that Muslim family in London. So it's alleged at this point, even though everybody... Accused, alleged. And um, his family's from Strathroy. He's working in Strathroy, so... And that happened really close to where you grew up, around London. Mm-hmm has a really interesting history in that way. At one point, people were calling it the serial killer capital of the world. Yeah. What yeah. the heck? Yeah, per capita, that, that the, the region had more serial, serial killers than anywhere else. Oh, wow. Yeah. So over to you, Matthew. Tell us the story. Thanks, Mike. The best description I've ever read of Southwestern Ontario was written by Margaret Atwood in her introduction to the Nobel Prize winning author Alice Munro's book, Carried Away. Have you read either of those? No, I haven't. No. They're amazing. Um, This description is so accurate that I actually felt it in my bones when I first read it, right? Mm. So here's some excerpts from the beginning of that book. So quote, Southwestern Ontario was nicknamed Sewesto by legendary Canadian artist Greg Curnow, and it's a name that stuck. Uh, I'm, I'm actually a good friend of Greg's daughter, Zoe. Oh, cool. Um, Kerno's view was that Sewesto was an area of considerable interest, but also of considerable psychic murkiness and oddity, a view shared by many. Author Robertson Davies, also from Southwestern Ontario, used to say, I know the dark folkways of my people. Now, I don't want to cut in on a quote here, mm. but that's interesting to me. What's that? that? There are considerable psychic murky murkiness and yeah. oddities in Sowesto. Yeah. So what what are some of those? Do you get into that later on or is that something? Well, it's just, I think part of it is the history of the place, mm-hmm. right? And I'll get into a little bit, but there's, you know, it's, it's like a small farming towns, but like so many horrible, horrible things happened. Right. That it's just this weird area. Huh. Yeah. yeah. So continue with your quote. Okay. You're likely to run into a few signs in Soesto wheat fields telling you to be prepared to meet your God or else your doom. Felt very much to be the same thing. (laughs) The country is mostly flat farmland cut by several wide winding rivers prone to flooding. And on the rivers, a number of towns grew up in the 19th century. Each has its own brick town hall, usually with a tower. Each its post office building, its handful of churches of various denominations. Each its main street and residential section of gracious homes and its other residential section on the wrong side of the tracks. Each has its families with long memories and stashes of bones in its closets. You're painting a picture of like a really interesting sort of suburban small town area. And they... I don't want to use the word cookie cutter because that, that would not be correct, but it sounds quaint. Well, so many of the towns are sort of similar in many ways, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. The Soesto contains the site of the famous Donnelly Massacre of the 19th century, when a large family was slaughtered and their home burnt as a result of political resentments carried over from Ireland. As far as the Donnellys go, mm. I haven't covered them yet. Mm. They are much covered. But interestingly, you being from the area, maybe it is you who should write our Donnelly Why Massacre. Why not? We learned episode. about it in school when I was a kid. Exactly. And I didn't. Yeah. Because I'm from Nova Scotia. We learned about the Mi'kmaq people. Okay. And everyone, everyone knew about the Donnellys when we were, we were growing up. Oh, there you go. It was, it was like the story that held on, right? So please tell me that story. I've read, obviously, read okay. a couple of books. and I'll write, I'll write an episode on the Donnellys. That would be fantastic. And I'll put the little Matthew twist on it somehow. Cool. <laughs> she goes on to write lush nature, repressed emotions, respectable fronts, 
hidden sexual excesses, outbreaks of violence, lurid crimes, long-held grudges, strange rumors, none are very far away in Monroe's Soesto, partly because all have been provided by the real life of the region itself, end quote. I'm from one of those towns, Strathroy. It's on the Sydenham River with its own red brick town hall. Yes, we have a tower, its own post office, its churches of various denominations. And in fact, my family actually helped build the United Church. Oh, wow. Yeah. So did you grow up in the United Church? Yeah. Oh, so did I. Yeah. I mean, we're kind of atheists, but I think my mom sent me there to get me out of the house. I had to go to Sunday school and I loathed every moment of it. (laughs) The way Sunday school worked there, I think it was like, Okay, take the kids away while the the parents have the actual sermon right. because the kids aren't. It's going to go over the kids' heads. And yeah, I did Sunday school, but the parents didn't actually go to the oh, church. Oh, the parents didn't go. No, oh, there you <laughs> go. Strathroy really has had it more than its fair share of lurid crimes over the years. Yeah, and when I say I'm from there, I'm I'm like really from there, Mike. My family were the early settlers. I'm actually fifth generation Strathroyan. Strathroyan. Yeah. Well, that sounds very regal. <laughs> Believe me, it's not. Um, so you can you you so you can say that I too kind of know the dark folk ways of my people. Well, right? There you go. So you know how to like, I don't know, raise a dead beaver and yeah, exactly uh, all those kind exactly. Of things. And uh, you know the long family memories. I'm going to tap in on some of those because one of my family members went to school with this murder. Cool. So I tapped into some of these memories uh, for this episode by talking to someone who knew him well, McGee well. She refers to him as Chris because that's how she knew him. Yep. She's a relative of mine. And for the show, I'm going to call her Stella. Okay. So she didn't want to be named. Well, I just thought, you know, and Stella, she thought was kind of a cool name. Okay. There you go. (laughs) Her earliest memories of McGee were when the one room schoolhouses that had once dotted the countryside outside of Strathroy were amalgamated in the early 1960s into a central school in Metcalf Township, and she ended up in the same school with him. Oh, wow. But my mom went to school in a one-room schoolhouse with an outhouse, right? Yeah. Isn't that incredible? Yeah, that is really... Like Little House on the Prairie sort of stuff. I went to the same elementary school as my mother did. So, I mean, it's been torn down now because it was old then, but... But yeah, I went to a proper elementary school and so did she. We actually had the same grade four teacher. Okay. Me and my mom. So I I understand what small towns are. I had had the same grade six teacher as my father. Oh, wow. And I can remember first day of school. Mm -hmm. She's going down the list and she gets to Stockton, Matthew, and she finally looks up after reading all the, and she goes, you wouldn't happen to be the son of Alan, would you? And I said, yes. And she says... I certainly hope you were a better student than he was. <laughs> and looks down and start, keeps doing the roll call. And I was like, I'm so fucked this year. <laughs> oh, no. So what, what did Stella talk to you about? She's saying that the powers that be wanted to get all the new kids into the school as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. And the school actually wasn't even quite finished. You, you know, there's probably some political thing like, hey, the one room schoolhouses are gone. We have the new shiny Metcalf Central School. With two rooms. Yeah, exactly. And she said that she remembers there are literally mountains of dirt from construction and kids being kids. She said we we played on those mountains of dirt. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that Chris, she kind of described him as sort of always lurking in the periphery. Right? Oh, okay, like he, yeah, he, he I remember those kind of kids. He he didn't like really super engage, but mm-hmm. he was always there. And she said what was weird is she didn't he didn't play with any kids his own age. He hung out with the young girls and so, just sort of watched them. Mm-hmm. And this isn't elementary school right Right. 
And, you know, she said we were like five or six years younger than he was, mm -hmm. but he always wanted to hang around where we were playing. Wow. And she said, when she said, when I think back about that, it's really creepy. Mm -hmm. Right. Especially with what he went on to do. Well, I made that memory for her, I think, unfortunately, a bit creepier because she hadn't heard this after he was arrested uh, for these murders and rapes as an adult. It came out that at the age of 12, he had sexually assaulted a girl at 10 at the time. Oh my goodness. So something that that was obviously, you know, cause he was a youth, it was kept under wraps, but it all came out in the court case. And I think when I told her that, I think she's like, oh my God, that's so weird. So that was, that would be around the time that she knew him. Obviously. Yeah. A couple wow. years later, probably. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. She had another memory of this time, which kind of freaked me out. Um, she said all the girls my age like to skip. Mm -hmm. um, like skip, like yeah. do skipping rope. Yeah. Jump rope. Right? Yeah. And I love how she said, she's like, we had all the mad moves, right? Yeah. <laughs> and he would hang around the periphery and watch. And she said she remembered him giving all the girls nicknames and they're all dogs names. Huh. He called her Skippy because she skipped so much. Other girls, he named things like Rover and Rex, right? Always dog names. And this bit sort of creeped me out. No kidding, because like... Well, it'll creep you out even more when we get further down the story. Okay. Right, because when I think about the job he had later in life and how he killed people, it just freaks me out that okay. you know, this sort of weird obsession started so early. She also described McGee as trying to look like Elvis Presley. Okay. So she said he always had this sort of short-waisted jacket and his hair was always black and slicked back and... She said that maybe there's product in it, but she, she thinks that maybe it was just, um, unwashed, unwashed because yeah. she said he, she said, I think he, uh, was from a broken sort of abusive home. Yeah. The news articles that I've read support this, that young McGee grew up in an emotionally and physically abusive home. And according to Christian McGee himself, both his parents berated him all the time, telling him he wouldn't amount to anything. They lived on the poverty line, and his father eventually took him out of school to work at a young age to help make ends meet, leaving McGee functionally illiterate. Yeah, yeah. It's a different time, isn't it? Mm -hmm. You know, people... Yeah, like, okay, you need to go to work to help the family earn yeah. some money, so yeah. we don't care whether you can read or not, we're going to yank you out of school. Yeah, yeah. So. And, and that had to be weird for a kid, too. I guess it, it was more accepted as a practice at that time. Well, but. especially in farming communities, mm -hmm. right? Like I remember when we were getting the, um, what do you call that? Uh, not not when you study for a full year, semester system. Yep. And all the parents who were farmers of the kids were upset because uh, sometimes they had to do the harvest. Yeah, right. so they would have to yank the kid out of school which at would important mean, times which, in the which semester. Which would mean in a semester when it's shorter, then they're missing more. So yeah, so that's sort of the community I'm from, mm. right? And it's a good old farming community. Stella also said to me that, you know, he always seemed to be a bit of a broken kid without friends. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she she was like, it's really interesting. I found she was like, God, we were just little kids, you know, and she she's thinking how sad his life was like the way it is and that it turned out to do what he did. Yeah. Um, because, yeah, you you know somebody. I remember kids that I grew up around who didn't have the best lives either, and some of them turned out just fine. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah there are always those ones that stand out, those memories that stand out. It's like, oh, yeah, that guy ended up in jail. Yeah. Or, yeah. yeah. Sometimes you're like, no surprise there. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. So let's fast forward from the 1960s to the late evening of Friday, 1st of March, 1974. 
Mm -hmm. Uh, It was a cold night and a fog had rolled into town. I was three at the time. I was most likely snuggled up at home in bed, just a 15 minute walk away from where this crime scene actually took place. Oh, wow. Judith Barksy, who had a shift at a nursing home later that night, walked from her home on Maitland Terrace to the Mother's Pizza on Frank Street. It's just, that's just like, just to give you a feeling, it's about an eight minute walk from her house to the, the pizza place. So pretty, just pretty local. Yeah. Right in the hood. Yeah. Well, everything is in a small town, right? Yeah. She went to pick up some food before her shift and she'd previously actually worked at Mother's Pizza. So was there chatting and joking around with some of the staff members before she uh, headed back towards her home with her meal. So everybody knows everybody. It's a small town. Yeah. People are like, Oh, hey, how you doing, Judith? You know, yeah. we, you know, yeah. haven't seen you in, in a couple of days. Yeah, this is early 70s. There's probably about yeah. 6,000 people that lived in this town. Not large. Right? And on her way home, she walked past a place called the News Depot mm-hmm. uh, towards a shortcut across the railroad tracks. As she started walking back home, perhaps she was thinking about how far she'd come. So Judith had a few tough breaks in her life, Mike, uh, having been through a series of foster homes as a child. Yeah. But now here she was, she was, you know, the age of 19, she was renting a place on her own. She was working at a nursing home. Actually, the nursing home was just behind my house, <laughs> uh, be, past the field. I used to joke to my mom when she got old, I just give her a suitcase and make her walk across the field. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> um, but you know, she's a, a few weeks away from graduating as a nurse's age, a aide. Sorry, she was a few weeks away from graduating as a nurse's aide. Mm-hmm. A compassionate job. I think that really takes a compassionate person. It's, it's a lot of work. Yeah, because you're dealing with people who need taken care of. Yeah, and I like people like Judith, right? People who overcome these obstacles in their lives and don't let the tough breaks they have define them. Mm-hmm. You know, she was getting on with her life after a shitty time, right? She had her whole life ahead of her, that is, until she passed McGee, uh, who was exiting the news depot just as she was going past. Okay, so here's where she meets Christian McGee. Yeah, so McGee had been watching hockey that night at home and decided to come downtown to buy, of all things, raffle tickets (laughs) at the news depot. Uh, As he left the shop, he spotted Judith walking past and began to follow her. He knew Judith and she knew him, but not that well, as she didn't really stop to talk to the dark figure following her in the fog. From the evidence, it seems that Judith eventually started running from him once he pulled out a knife, dropping her food as she ran. Uh, She made it to a phone booth to call for help, but by that time, McGee had caught up with her, promptly slashing her throat before fondling her while she lied dying on the ground. Oh, geez. Stealing $10 in change that she had, washing his jackknife in a nearby puddle, and walking back home with his raffle tickets to his wife. So he's married by this time, has a wife at home. You know that old uh, chestnut of people saying, oh, serial killers are these creepy guys who live by themselves, these loners. No, they are not. No. Many, many, many times, as we have learned on this show. They have lives. They have a life with a wife, kids. They have a job that they go to every week without fail. Yeah. But they do things like this. Yeah. And, you know, just like that, in just that few seconds, Judith was gone, Mm -hmm. right? Her life snuffed out in a really brutal way. Later, when he was asked what was going through his mind at the time and why he did it, he simply said, she looked good from behind. Oh, God. I know. That just reminded me of my monster. Yeah. You know, following me. Yeah. Yeah, it really, that really took me back. Just a last minute sort of, oh, yeah. I like the look of that. Yeah. It, it was a crime of opportunity. Yeah. 
it wasn't one that he had planned. He hadn't been stalking her forever. He'd probably seen her around town. Yeah. And just saw her walking past him right then and there. Now's the time. Yeah. Someone found her body the next day. He stumbled upon a trail of food. So a bottle of grapefruit juice, a bottle of orange crush, a pizza, a coffee crisp. Then he saw one shoe that she had run out of in her panic. Mm. And the trail eventually led towards the phone booth. Uh, the receiver was swaying in the cold March wind and her body was close by. Yeah. Police investigations determined McGee was a person of interest as witnesses had placed him near the scene at the time. So they knew he could have been involved early on in the investigation. Yeah, you just wait. He keeps on popping onto the radar. Of course. Right? Uh, but there was no evidence against him. So he, he remained just a person of interest uh, before the case went cold. The mad slasher, as he became known, had got away with it. So the first murder is done. The first murder that we know of. Yeah. Yeah. Because with these guys, sometimes the murders that we learn about are not the only ones that they've committed. No. The murders that the police can talk about are not the only ones that they've committed. So McGee went quiet for the next number of months until June of 1975, when a young woman of 18, who we'll call Anna to protect her privacy, was walking through Alexander Park. So now, Mike, Alexander is a large park in the middle of Strathroy, cut in half by Victoria Street. Mm -hmm. The Sydenham River runs through it. um, And like Margaret Atwood's quote, (laughs) it often floods. (laughs) Yeah. And on the west side of the park, it floods every spring. It's a park I spent a lot of time in as a kid. Mm -hmm. It had different areas, a baseball field where I learned to play t-ball, a pond, a trail, and there's a forested area and a boardwalk that takes you over sort of this marsh filled with skunk cabbage and the town swimming pools on the other side. And as she was walking through the park, enjoying the early summer day, McGee was waiting for her and jumped her from behind and tried to rape her. But while he was trying to take her jeans off, the zipper broke in the struggle which frustrated McGee. Uh, So he then choked her into unconsciousness before fondling her and leaving her for dead on the side of the road. Holy jeez. So this woman was a survivor, though, and lived to tell the story. She was able to give a description of McGee, which didn't seem to matter as he remained free to kill again later that year. And kill he did. Yes. On the 20th of October, 1975, a young 19-year-old mother... Patricia Jenner was in her white and pink shuttered frame house in Mount Bridges, just a few miles down Highway 81 from Strathroy. She'd just put her six-month-old baby down for a nap and was probably looking forward to her husband coming home from work when there was a knock on her door. It was McGee. Patricia knew Christian McGee, so she invited him in. Maybe a conversation started and eventually a box of photographs came out and they started to look at them together. Suddenly, McGee attacked, ripping off her clothes and beginning to rape before he suddenly stopped and told her to get dressed. McGee later said his morals and respect for her made him initially stop, but then he snapped. So what I think is going on at this point is that he was unable to compartmentalize this crime. Mm. Like some serial killers will only kill strangers because they are objects to them. Mm -hmm. And Patricia was not an object to Christian McGee, so he wasn't able to... Separate it somehow. To separate, and he wasn't able to continue because he saw her as a person. Yeah. As Patricia was dressing, probably shaking and in fear for herself and her baby, McGee came up behind her with her black shoelace and strangled her before slashing her throat. So probably in that time, 
that he had realized, well, I can't go through with this. But I can't just leave now. But right? I can't just leave now. She knows who I am. She's yeah. going to tell somebody. Yeah. So he, in his mind, had to, had to murder her. Yeah. He then rummaged around the house, stealing $40 before leaving. That evening, Dennis Jenner, Patricia's husband, came home to find his wife's body on the kitchen floor, blood smeared, family photos scattered across the room. The baby, thankfully, was unharmed and in her bed. I can't imagine how horrible that would have been for Dennis coming home like that, just another day of work and find the woman you love, like laying on the floor in a pool of blood. I also think about that baby, who'd be about our age now, had to grow up without her mom. And I really hope life has been good to her and that she's flourished despite this tragedy. Yeah. Yeah, because if you think about it, like this is, that baby was, we're probably the same age as that kid at the sure, time, yeah. right? You know, and all of a sudden mom's gone. Yeah. And I'm thinking about the husband having to explain that to this child. Where did mommy go? Yeah. How do you explain to a baby as they grow yeah. that your mother was killed in another room while you were there sleeping? Yeah. That there was a murderer in, in another hor- room. Horrible, isn't it? Yeah. Luckily, small towns have nosy neighbors, and an elderly neighbor next door was able to give a description that fit the two other cases. The neighbor was also able to give a description of the car, a yellow, older model Oldsmobile, which matched McGee's father's car. What caught the attention of the neighbor initially was how McGee, after pulling into the driveway, stood for a very long time listening at the door before he knocked. That's creepy. What I think he was doing was listening at the door before he knocked to ensure that the husband wasn't home. Yeah, probably. Is it just the woman and the baby, you know? Because if you knock and the husband's home, how do you explain your presence? Yeah. You're not going to be able to do what you end up doing. Hmm. So this is definitely, uh, he planned this situation. Who knows if he went there to actually murder her, Mm. but I definitely believe he went there to sexually assault her. Christian McGee was picked up for questioning by both the Strathroy police and the OPP. The police had connected him to both victims, but in a small town like Strathroy, almost everybody knows everybody else, and without evidence or confession, they had to let him go. It didn't take him any time to strike again. At this point, he changed his modus operandi. The police had talked to him about how he knew the two women who were killed, so he began looking for strangers a bit further out of town. And who better to attack than random hitchhikers? So there you go. That sort of proves my theory about killing and sexually assaulting the people who you know is a lot harder than than random strangers. Random strangers, people who you have no connection to at all. He didn't care about these random strangers. He can... He can ogle them, he can leer at them, he can do whatever he wants with mm-hmm. them because he has no emotional feeling about them. Yeah. It can be all about his lust yeah. and his rage. Of course, the largest benefit of murdering strangers is that Christian McGee had no connection to them at all, and it would make it much harder for the police to trace a murder or rape or whatever crime he was committing back to him. We'll take a short break right here, and when we come back, Matthew will continue with the story. I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. 
A few weeks later, on the 3rd of November, 1975, a 19-year-old girl, who we'll call Beth to protect her identity, was hitchhiking to London, Ontario, which is just about half an hour from Strathroy. Hitchhiking, you know, Mike, you and I have discussed this, hitchhiking was common in, in the mid-1970s. Unfortunately, it was McGee who picked her up. She told him where she was headed, but McGee had other plans and drove her to a secluded side road, violently raped her, smashed her over the head with a glass bottle, fracturing her skull, and rolled her into the ditch beside the road to leave her to die. But this girl was a fighter. She survived the ordeal. She actually spent, Mike, over a month at recovering in the hospital from a fractured skull and was able to give, again, another description of McGee to the police. But unbelievably, even at this point, he wasn't arrested. The police somehow still did not manage to connect the dots, leaving him free to strike one final time. It was a little ways away. So, okay, we'll give them a break at this point. Frustrating though, isn't it? It is frustrating. Yeah. Like, there can't be that many predators in this area. But at the same time, like we said earlier, he's changed his modus operandi. Yeah. He's now decided that he's going to take on killing strangers. So, Strathroy cops... Mm. are looking at, yeah, well, we're looking for Christian McGee to do it again here. Yeah, or for somebody doing, to do it again here, right. Yeah. And it was the 70s, right? I mm. think I think the police have gotten a lot better since yeah, then. for sure. <laughs> you know, uh, The following summer on the 15th of June, 1976, 15-year-old Susan Shoals was dropped off in Forest, Ontario by her brother. So Forest is not a very creative name for a town. Let's call this place Forest because it's a very wooded area. Yeah. Like, well, what, what, what would we call this area? We would call this area books. Books. <laughs> books and uh, stuff. Books and stuff. Yeah. River. Yeah, that's kind of like naming a town river. Right. Or field. Well, Bridgewater Bridge. was named Bridgewater because there are a bridge and water. Or three bridges over the water. Oh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, near Forest, you know, if you think of her mindset at the time, Mike, school's out, long summer of fun ahead of her. Nice. Swimming, sunshine, hanging out with friends. Uh, her brother had actually dropped her off on his way to work, and she said she's going to find her way back to the family cottage on Hillsborough Beach. It's on Lake Huron, just 20 minutes down the road past Iprawash and Kettle Point from my old family cottage in Port Franks, for listeners who might know the area. Doing my research, I, I really felt for her brother. I can't imagine, can you imagine you drop off your sibling and it's the last time you see them alive? Well, Yeah. Like it just, it, I, you know, I, when I was doing this research, I just felt so badly for him. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, he didn't deserve this hell. She didn't deserve this hell or her parents. It should have been just this beautiful summer on the shores of, yeah, of it's Lake the best Huron. time of year for a young person is, right. is summer. Like, because you actually have some freedom, um, yeah. summers in Canada, well, it depends on where you are, but summers in Eastern Canada that I recall are hot yeah. Lots of swimming, like you mentioned, and yeah. just, just a good time, yeah. you know? Yeah, should have been the healthy days of youth, but this fucker came around and turned, turned it into a nightmare, right? Yeah. So after buying batteries, she stuck out her thumb on the side of the road. She was last seen alive at 1.30 p.m. by a forklift driver who was driving slowly down the road. The same day at 4.30 p.m., uh, a James Frayne, a farmer, was driving his tractor down a dirt road and found Susan's body. He didn't really go up to it 
too much, he quickly jumped back on his tractor and raced home as fast as he can go on a tractor. He sees this body mm. laying on a dirt road and rather than touch it, he was a smart guy. Yeah. Rather than touch it, took off home, to made call some the phone calls. Yeah. yeah. I don't know what I would do. What would you do in that situation? You find a body. Obviously, probably I would want to check to see if the person was alive, but maybe, I don't know what state she was in. She might've been very obviously deceased. She was. Yeah. 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 I think if somebody looks obviously deceased, I would, I've watched enough yeah, law, law and order. To know not to. Yeah. Not to step on anything. Yeah. Right. Once he called the police, they came, she had been raped, strangled, her throat slashed, and there was a slash over her pubic area. Mm -hmm. So you're starting to see him further developing. Yeah. It's like his crimes are getting more brutal. Yeah. Yeah. There was no weapon found at the scene. Mm -hmm. uh, the news spread quickly in the small community and the driver of the forklift uh, told the police that he saw Susan get into a 1975 Ford pickup truck owned by a John Grimson's company. Mm -hmm. uh, he had been going slowly down the road using a forklift and easily saw her get into the truck in his rear view mirror. The police spoke to Grimson that day who told them that Christian McGee, an employee of his, had been using the truck that day. Oh no. Yeah. So Grimson had a company that, uh, remember when I talked about um, how he called all the girls' dogs' names? Yeah. So Grimson had a company that picked roadkill off of the side of the road. Oh no. So McGee was employed to pick up dead animals like dogs that got hit by cars off the side of the road. Mm. A job that one colleague of his said, quote, he just seemed to enjoy too much. So that fact kind of freaks me out and maybe goes into his mindset of seeing women as these dogs, right? Or these animals and that he sort of dehumanizing what he's done is to completely dehumanize these yeah. women, right? Yeah. It's like even, even his use of nicknames, dog nicknames when he was a child was yeah. dehumanizing and belittling yeah. to these I mean, I don't know girls. if I'm, I'm reading too much into it, but when I heard my relative tell that part of the story and then read this part just mm. sort of connected in my head right? yeah so he had absolutely no compassion at all for these women and these girls right so the next day on the 16th at 3 27 p.m an opp cruiser and an unmarked police vehicle arrived at christian mcgee's employer's farm as soon as the marked cruiser was shifted into park McGee opened the passenger door and got in without saying a word. Isn't that incredible? I know why you're here. Like literally the, the, they parked and he just walked up and got into the back of the car. He was brought in for questioning where he admitted to picking Susan up but denied killing her. He told them that he dropped her off. Police held him and got a warrant to search his home and truck where they found grass that was identified as the same grass where her body was found, blood on his clothes, and a filleting knife that had no blood, but was consistent with the slashes on Susan's body. We know that he will already clean his weapon because he did that with his jackknife yeah. in the puddle. In the puddle. Yeah. The trial held before the Supreme Court of Ontario lasted eight days. Testimony was given by one of the surviving women who identified him as her rapist. Testimony was also given by four psychiatrists and one psychologist labeling him as a dangerous psychopath with severe personality disorder. McGee testified in court in his own defense, and throughout the entire trial, he denied killing Susan. The jury deliberated for a little over three hours. 
They found him not guilty on the grounds of insanity, and he was remanded into psychiatric care at the maximum security ward at the Penetanguishing Mental Health Center, now named Waypoint. He was subsequently charged with the murders of Judy Barksy and Louise Jenner as well as the assaults and rapes of the two other women. McGee gave written and signed statements admitting to these murders and assaults. He was again found not guilty by reason of insanity. Now, let's fast forward to 2004. McGee, some say, had been a model prisoner until that point, and he applied to be moved to a medium-secure unit in downtown Toronto on Queen Street West, where he could eventually be given day parole. A serial killer is moving toward day parole. Yeah. Just think about that. Yeah. Psychologist Dr. Philip Klassen wrote a report supporting this request, which read, quote, This gentleman's fantasies involving torture, dismemberment, and cannibalism with respect to his victims is also consistent with the diagnosis of sexual sadism, as is a history of post-mortem sexually related activities. So necrophilia. Mm -hmm. This gentleman's history suggests to me that this gentleman could be managed on a medium secure unit with respect to both aggressive behavior and elopement risk. I don't understand how that sentence can start with what he's saying, but then at the end say, yeah, but put him into it. He did all these things, but we'll manage him <laughs> and in he's, and he's still And he still fantasizes about them, but we can put him into a medium. Yeah, he'll be fine there. Yeah. Uh, in 2005, the Provincial Review Board approved Christian McGee's transfer to the medium secure unit and ordered the Penetanguishing facility to release him to the Toronto facility. However, the staff at the Penetanguishing facility refused to do it, saying he was, quote, a sadistic serial murderer and that, quote, Mr. McGee has a number of risk factors which combine to make him a very high risk candidate for any form of release. Well, surprise. Mm. Susan Scholl's brother was there as well, and he said, McGee should never get out. There's nothing much more to say than that. Mike, when I was doing the research uh, on, on the show, it's um, the family members through the years of all of his requests for paroles, et cetera, were always there. Mm. So they held on and they kept fighting, uh, which is just amazing. Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, Cheryl Duggan, whose sister Lynn was murdered in North Vancouver, I mm -hmm. I had her on the show. Yeah. She still is dealing with this. And yeah. it was in the 90s that Lynn, her sister, was murdered. Yeah. So she still goes to all the parole hearings. She was just, just recently texting me about parole hearings. So there are a lot of families who will see this through. Yeah. And oftentimes it's only one person in the family who can bear it. Yeah. Penetanguishin held McGee for a year, refusing to transfer him. In 2006, the chairman of the Provincial Review Board at a tribunal said, quote, We find it rather offensive that the review board's order from last year has been snubbed. A year ago, an order was made and nothing was done. It could be said that the board's nose is out of joint. End quote. He went on to call for McGee's lawyer to bring a motion citing Penetanguishing for contempt. I love that Penetanguishing just dug their heels in. Sure. Yeah. Well, they had been dealing with this yeah, guy. they knew him. They knew exactly. I mean, they saw what happened with Peter Woodcock mm. when Woodcock and his partner got out on a day pass, mm. you know? So they'd had a history of these kind of things. After the hearing in an interview, McGee said, quote, I'm elated. I'm no longer dangerous. I don't want to hurt anybody. I'm hoping sometime down the road I will be able to go out and visit with my family. End quote. McGee's lawyer said this was a flat-out victory for Chris. 
If Chris is not at the Toronto facility by next week, I will go to the Superior Court with a motion calling for contempt charges to be laid against Penetanguishene. He wasn't transferred the following week. (laughs) In fact, the officials at Penetanguishene launched an appeal with the Supreme Court of Ontario to stop the transfer with the support of the Attorney General, and in 2006, they won. Justice E.A. Cronk's 27-page ruling didn't mince words as it condemned the review board's decision. Thank goodness. And it goes on to say, quote, The board's decision was not made after meaningful consideration of the requisite statutory factors, namely the need to protect the public from Mr. McGee. The evidence was that Mr. McGee persists in seeking a transfer to a medium-secure facility because he believes that it will facilitate his desired access to women. Mr. McGee's motivation in seeking a transfer should have sounded an alarm bell for the review board, end quote. Good on you, Justice E.A. Cronk. Yeah, yeah. You know? It, it's amazing. It's amazing, right? So they just, they, the, when they had the review, Penetanguishing just showed them all the documents and what he was saying. And, yep. and, and I don't know how this works. Like, I don't know if, do parole boards have a, uh, a mandate to release a certain number of prisoners a year or two? Well, this actually, this this actually went to the Supreme Court uh, of Canada at one point, Mike, where uh, the Supreme Court actually said that somebody who's pent into a mental facility mm-hmm. has to be, they actually said has to be eventually released. Has to be. Has to be. Yeah, which, I was aware of that. Which is ridiculous because mm-hmm. if you're not getting well and you're going to still murder people, right? you should not be out. No. There are those facilities in the U.S. where sexual predators are held after their actual release from prison in a hospital facility for to determine whether they are ready to come back into society and some of them are held there in perpetuity yeah so i don't know about the legality of that in canada i don't think we could do that and i don't know about the humanity of that either no but if somebody's still sick and a danger you can't let them out right so let's come back to the people of Strathroy as we were just discussing. You know, in my research, I saw that a lot of the relatives of the victims were at all of the hearings over the years. So Which what, is amazing. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't just one. There was a bunch of them. And they stood up for their loved ones. They spoke at the hearings. They spoke to the media. Everybody will say, that's what I will do. Yeah. But I have seen it over and over again in my research. People get tired. They get exhausted and they want to yeah. move on, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, these are strong people and they didn't back off and I totally applaud them. And I can't imagine what they've gone through. And I think it's in no small part that McGee remained locked up due to their voices Mm -hmm. against the insanity of the authorities trying to release him. That that was bonkers. Yeah. Yeah, he still has fantasies about murdering and, you know, raping and murdering and then cannibalistic necrophilic ideas. And he wants access to women. Yeah. Right? Ridiculous. I actually talked to my mom about these few years in the early 70s as well, where some of the murders and rapes were a mere 15 minute walk from the house that we were living in. Yeah. And she said to me it was really frightening and that she would lock the doors and windows at night, something that we never did. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but she also said she was thankful that she had both my brother and I who were only 10 months apart. So she had a three and a four year old and she's like, that kept me at home all the time. I wasn't out and about. Maybe right. you guys saved me. Right. Yeah. My relative Stella also said, you know, cause I asked her about the girls and, and she said, I didn't really know any of the girls that he killed. 
Mm. at the time. Uh, but she said, we're all young women in a small town. And she said, you know, I always thought that we were just in this small town and crime never happened and it wouldn't happen in a nice community. And after this happened, she said, to be honest, I often worried about the boogeyman around every corner. Yeah. It really, you know, it really shook people. Mm -hmm. I asked her what her reaction was when McGee was caught. And I found this interesting. She said, horror and sadness. Of course, horror and sadness for the girls. That absolutely goes without saying. But also for Chris. And I think what she meant there, the child Chris. Yeah. Right? So this guy who she knew. As a child. Yeah. She didn't know him as an adult. Mm -hmm. She said, what turned him into this? Into a serial killer? Was it written on the walls all along? How does this happen? I just don't understand it. It's unfathomable. Yeah. There are a few people from my hometown who, if somebody said, so-and-so is a serial killer, I would say, okay. Mm. But there are others who, you know, they had some darkness about them, but I would be surprised that they went on to hurt somebody. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. When it's someone you know, there's all these jokes in the true crime community. It's like, oh, he was a quiet guy, kept to himself, blah, yeah. blah, 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 blah. But that's sometimes the truth. Yeah. It's not always obvious that yeah. the person who is a serial killer is a serial killer. Yeah. Yeah. You know? So what I find interesting is this idea of unfathomable, right? Mm -hmm. And with that, I'll end where we began, going back to the Atwood quote at the beginning of the episode, quote, in small town Soesto, people's lives were dull, simple, amazing, and unfathomable. Deep caves paved with kitchen linoleum. <laughs> I love that line. So the key word is unfathomable. Yes. Whoa. Deep caves paved, paved with, with kitchen, kitchen linoleum. linoleum. Isn't that a great line? Linoleum. Uh, linoleum is one of those words, you know, when it comes up, you, you know exactly what people are talking about. Yeah. If, well, if you live in North America, you yeah. know. Yeah. And that's it for Dark Poutine episode 187, The Mad Slasher of Strathroy. Matthew, Wow. Hope you guys enjoyed it. I'm sure they did. They had to have because I did. Good. I really enjoyed this episode. It was nice to be more of a fly on the wall for an episode for the mm. very first time. Yeah. I got to be, you know, I've done interview episodes, but I haven't ever done an episode like this. And I enjoyed it immensely. Do, and it, I, do I get to I, write some more? I would love it if you wrote okay. some more. It would be fantastic. Mike, how many people lived in your hometown? 8,000. Around. Yeah, so you and I grew up in sort of the same size of hometown. Yeah, not... So you get... Totally. <laughs> you get this sort of... Um, when you're talking about the park that split yeah. was split by the road, the park that I remembered was the Duck Pond, and it was very close to our home. Yeah. But it was a large park yeah. uh, with a, a massive pond in the middle with ducks, and people would run around it mm. and walk around it and those kind of things. But it's a small town park. And it's not much to it. It's just a little exactly. park. And I'm doing this research, right? And mm. I, I remember Mother's Pizza. Um, uh, somebody I knew whose grandparents owned the News Depot mm -hmm. that cut across the tracks. I know exactly where it is. I know that phone booth. Yeah, sure. Right? Yeah. And, um, and Maitland Street was one street over from my great-grandmother's house. Right. Like it's all right there. That's why I, I kind of... Uh, enjoyed, I don't want to say enjoyed because he destroyed so many lives, but looking this history up. About you were fascinated by it. it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you, you felt more connected to it than perhaps a story that took place in, I don't know, uh, 
upper Sclavobia yeah. or something, you know, yeah. some place that you're not familiar with. It's like when I wrote the episode that was uh, the Penny Boudreaux, mm-hmm. this woman murdered her daughter, Carissa, her 12-year-old in Bridgewater. It all happened in my neighborhood. Yeah. It's a small town, but that neighborhood is also a small as yeah. well. Yeah. Every place that was mentioned in that episode, I knew yeah. intimately. Yeah. Every single place yeah. where the girl's body was found, the Sobeys store where mm. they went beforehand, where the mother strangled the daughter yeah. was a place where we used to go drinking back yeah. in the woods because there was nobody around. It, these are all like, when you come from a small town and something happens there, the effect on you is massive. Yeah. I hear about a murder in Surrey mm. and I don't feel a real connection with it. Yeah. But if I hear about a murder that happened in Bridgewater, where I grew up, because of the size of that town, the intimate connection I have with every corner of it, I really feel a connection to absolutely everything that goes on there. And it's like, whoa, this is heavy, man. Yeah. I think it's, um, in talking to my relative as well, Mm -hmm. it gave me the opportunity to catch catch up with her and... Sure. And to understand that, you know, the school that she went to, actually, I'll post a picture of that school tomorrow on, on, on the Umberyard. Okay, that's a good a picture idea. Of, of my mom and an, and an aunt and my grandma there. Oh, wow, fun. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, number one, for writing that episode. That was great. But now it's time to move on to voicemails. Voicemails. We had some people who called us and gave us some love, I think, I hope. I we hope. haven't lived, we haven't pre- Listen to these, so oh, no. it could be, you bunch of jerks, <laughs> I think your show sucks. Well, let's, let's go. You and, know, if it does. And if, if somebody, somebody does, let's just, let's just rip them apart. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> if someone calls me and tells me my show sucks, here's the answer that we should have for them. Let's listen to yours. <laughs> we want to listen to yours. <laughs> let's listen to your show. All right. I don't know where this one's from, but we'll go for it. Maybe Alberta. Hey, Matt Mike. Love listening to the show. Been a long-time listener, first-time caller. It's Big T here calling from the huge metropolis of Alliance, Alberta. Sitting in a combine, a big old green John Deere right now. So uh, what inspired me to call was uh, listening to episode 185, and Matt came up with the great one-liner there, Cock Knocker. Well, that was what inspired me. I haven't heard that uh, saying in uh, in a real long time. But I, I do love the show, right, from episode one to the 185. And uh, you two cock knockers have yourselves a, a great day. And I'm going to continue listening to, to 186 after this. And uh, look forward to 187 and all the other episodes after that. Sorry for the noise. Like I said, I mean, uh, a big old green John Deere combine right now. So, uh, adios to you both, and you guys have a real shitty day, and uh, go shit in your heads. Well, how about that? Thank you so much for that voicemail. I love it when people call from their tractor and call us cock knockers. That's fantastic. He's in a combine, wasn't he? He's in a combine. John Deere. My grandfather had a John Deere combine. I have all I recall from my childhood is stories about combine accidents. Oh, really? Some kid getting his arm lopped off in a combine yeah, accident. Yeah, no, don't be saying that. The guy's driving a combine. We don't want to make him worry. 
What, worry that there's a child in the Don't field. Don't be a cock knock- knocker, Mike. I'm, I won't be a cock knocker. But thank you for calling from thank your you combine. Thank you so much. That's so cool. I love that. That is cool. Uh, somewhere in the wilds of Alberta he was. Let's listen to this one. Hi, I'm calling to say um, first, hi, my name is Andrea, and I'm from Abitibi, Quebec. And um, I just wanted to say that I, I listened to you since I was 17, and I am now I'm 21, and I really like your show. And I was listening to it while I was in class. And I don't think my teachers liked it, but I really like you. So thank you, and uh, fantastic. Wow. That was the most uh, francophone call that I think I we've had. I love that. Thank the you. The most Quebecois. I'm, I'm off to Quebec uh, tomorrow, Mike. Yes, you are. Yeah. And St- Steve is going to a uh, Steve's going to a little a, a dog sitter. A dog sitter. So um, she so that caller, what was her name? Andrea. Andrea. Yeah. Was listening from seventeen to twenty one. That really struck me, and I, I'm glad I, that she I said that. I saw the look on your face. It's like the, I, the look was, "Ooh, I'm old." Well, I've been doing this for a while. <laughs> so you you started when you were a teenager, and now you're an adult, and you're still listening. That's I'm awesome. really sorry. No, that's really cool. Oh, that is crazy. Uh, but thank you for your call. Thank you, Andrea. Andrea, very nice. This one might also be from Alberta. We're having a lot of Albertans calling, but, you know. They're friendly people. They really are. Hey, Mike and Matthew. It's uh, Ryan from, well, I guess we're the Texas of Canada and Alberta here. Um, just wanted to call you after this week's episode. I, I, I'm an avid dark poutine for years um matthew into the mix has made this podcast possibly one of the best i listen to um i just want to thank both of you for your perspectives on on 9-11 that you shared this week uh, you took a very intelligent thoughtful approach to the aftermath of this attack matthew i think at one point you said you felt like you were getting worked up but i i would tend to say you were actually extremely factual and uh, very articulate. So 9-11, working as a volunteer firefighter at that time, and because of 9-11, majority of the last two decades working in emergency services, I started as an EMT and firefighter and I transitioned into working as a police officer for about a decade before depression and PTSD kind of led me to having to pick up a nice cozy desk job. Um, but let's be honest, this, this isn't about me. No one gives a shit about my story. It's about you too. So I just wanted to thank you for the respectful way you approached not only the 9-11 story, but all the stories you share. You truly remind us that the stories are not and should not be about the perpetrator but rather the victims and their loved ones. So I just wanted to say thanks to you guys and tell you to go shit in your hat, you hosers. Well, that's great. Um, thank you for your service, number one, in all the different branches of service that that's you... That's incredible. That is incredible. Um, I trained as a junior fireman in my uh, early days, my days back in Bridgewater, uh, and a lot of the junior firemen transitioned to the grown-up fire department afterward. I moved away. Otherwise, I'd probably be a volunteer fireman in Bridgewater right now. But uh, Can I say something inappropriate? 
about firemen and calendars and hoses. So you take some, you take a guy who's like a solid six, mm-hmm. put him in a fireman's uniform. Yeah. And he's like a solid nine and a half. Oh, wow. <laughs> so no, thank you for your service. Yeah, thank and, you. and, uh, that's great. I've had a few messages about that episode, uh, that we did on nine 11 and it really did strike me. And in a number of ways, um, one of the one of the victims of nine eleven was somebody a friend knew. Um, he was he was the pastor who was killed by falling debris and victim zero 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 one of the day. So, uh, yeah, it's it's really nine eleven was a tough one for us to cover because we were alive then and we remembered it and uh, it really had a big impact on my life at the time and. People who are first responders and those kind of things, I think those are the guys we should be paying like rock stars. I don't understand. Okay, Mike. I mean, there's a lot more F- of them than there are rock stars. police officers, yeah. nurses. Doctors. Uh, doctors. <laughs> well, doctors get paid pretty good. Some of them. Some of them. But honestly, like you look at what they do in the work mm. and... Versus somebody like me who sells cannabis for a living and makes a good living. Mm-hmm. I feel guilty about it. You feel guilty? Yeah. Why? I'm just joking. I don't feel that guilty. You don't feel guilty. But my point being, honestly, it's, um, they get shortchanged, I think. For sure. Yeah. So that's it for this week's voicemails. If you want to leave us a voicemail... Um, you can do so at one eight seven seven three two seven five seven eight six or one eight seven seven D A R K P T N P T N. And you know what? Write it out. Don't write it out. Whatever. If you're comfortable talking, that's a good thing. If practice in front of the mirror. Practice in front. Oh, I don't like practicing in front of a mirror. That is not a. It's not. It's not fun for me to do. Okay. I, yeah. I can't stand to watch myself. I don't know what it is. I can't stand to listen to myself, but I have to. So I had to get used to it. Well, I, 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 I can stand watching myself. I can't stand listening to myself. Yeah, it's funny how that works. <laughs> All right. I guess it is time to move on to Patreon. Let's see if anybody gave us some love this week. Give us your love. So as far as Patreon goes, this week we have Elizabeth Reardon, and she's from Cargill, Ontario. Another Ontarian. Another Ontarian. So thanks, Liz. What does Liz do there in Cargill, Ontario? I just think of, isn't Cargill the thing you see on trains? Isn't that a, a company? Eh, I don't know. I'm not sure. But she um, she makes amphibious cars. She makes amphibious cars? Yeah. Oh, I've always actually kind of Get wanted. It? Cargill? Actually, I saw a video. <laughs> I, oh, no. Cargill, I know. But boom I saw a video with an amphibious car just this morning, actually. I really have wanted one of those since I was a child. Like the 1950s looking ones with the fins? Yeah, like all, yeah, all of the above. Red? And anything, Red? I would like actually an amphibious like car submarine thing. Okay. Well, hit her up. She, she designs them. Well, there you go. Liz, please. Thanks, Liz. Please. I would definitely require one of those. Thank you for Patreoning. Thank you for Patreoning for sure. From somewhere we're not sure of, or at least I'm not, Matthew knows. Shauna Talbot. Shauna. Where is Shauna from? Shauna is from Petrolia. Petrolia. Where, what is 
what is, is it a petrol Actually, place? it's not far from Strathroy. Oh, okay. So Petrolia mm-hmm. is, uh, was Canada's Victorian oil town and it's after, often. So cre- I was right. Petrolia. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Petrolia. Okay. It's often credited with actually starting the oil industry in North America. One of the first, uh, is one of the first places where they got oil in North America. Well, there you go. Yeah. That's really cool. Thank you, Shauna Talbot from Petrolia. And what does she do there? She pumps gas. Looks gas after tank. the Fitzgerald rig. What is that? It's it's a rig that's uh, been in service since 1903, and she's an engineer to to keep it going. Oh, that's really cool. Oil rig. It's a 1903 oil rig, and she keeps it she keeps it running. That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Shona. That's it for Patreon. Let's move on thank to you. PayPal. So this week. Donut Money Donor? Yeah. Teresa Temlet. Hello, Teresa. And I don't know where Teresa's from either. I know she's not from Petrolia or Cargill. No. Where is she from? She's from the Big Island, Hawaii. Oh, man. I want to go to Hawaii so badly. I would love to go to Hawaii. I have never been. Uh, it is sort of on my bucket list of things to do. It's the... Are, do the volcanoes still erupt there? Are they continually erupting? Like, uh, I just have this vision of a, of a continuous erupting volcano. I think some keep spewing a little bit, okay. right? And so there's areas see? where you can go and see. That's, and that's why I want to go. I want to see. I want to see the volcanoes. Yeah, I want to see nature I, doing its thing. I, I want to see a new piece of land because of a volcano. volcano. Yeah, it's so cool. It is. Yeah. And obviously, Hawaii looks really pretty and I hear the food's good. Yeah. Yeah. And the weather. So all the things. Let's go. Yeah. I'm I'm up for it. And maybe we should do a... Isn't uh, Dog the Bounty Hunter from from Hawaii? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) With his hair. With his hair. That mullet. Like, all business up front and a real serious party in the back. (laughs) But... (laughs) Uh, I don't know. Maybe we should do a meetup in Hawaii. Oh, that'd be great. Let's go to Hawaii and have a meetup. Dark Poutine. Yeah, we could. Excellent. Yeah, we could totally expense it. No problem. Thank you, tax man. <laughs> exactly. Oh, that, that is it for our Donut Money donors and Patreons this week. Uh, thank you thank so you guys. much. Um, thank you to you all, past and present, for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you can, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Please pre-order my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem. There's a link to it on dark, the Dark Poutine website, or you can search for it, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem by Mike Brown, that's Brown with an E, at any major retailer like Amazon and Indigo here in Canada and other booksellers, other fantastic booksellers. If you would like... Check out our website, darkpoutine.com, for show notes and other cool stuff. Please take the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening and tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. Until next week, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye, everyone. Bye. 
Hi. Her name is Elspeth. Elspeth Tassioni. You know her as the offbeat but brilliant defense attorney from The Good Wife and The Good Fight. You've been a very busy little bee. Buzz, buzz. Now, she's in New York with the NYPD. This is very different. Better. But still using her unconventional ways to find the truth. You're trying to sniff me, Miss Tassioni? <laughs> Elspeth, new series Thursdays on Global. Stream on Stack TV.